0: Um, The reading this evening is from Philippians, and it's chapter 1 and verses 1 to 11, and it's on page 1178. So Philippians and starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, today we're looking at being a Christian, and this is the last of a series of talks, on the Christian faith, which began on the April, on April the 3rd, would you believe? Last week, Clive spoke about reaching a decision. He summarized what we'd covered in the whole of the course, and he spoke about how we become followers of the Lord Jesus. And today we look at what happens next. What differences will you begin to see in your life now that Jesus is in charge, And as we look at this passage from Philippians, it was a letter written to the church at Philippi to followers of Jesus who had only just come to believe in Jesus. It was a young church. They'd come to faith through the preaching and example of the Apostle Paul. And now it's Paul that writes to them to encourage them to go on in their faith, to grow up. And to keep going. So, becoming a Christian is where you start the race. It's a a good thing to start. It's essential that you do get started. But you can't spend all your Christian life at the start line when you've a long marathon to run. Has anybody uh, taken part in a marathon? I'm afraid I haven't done, but I understand that after you've applied for it, you get a kind of starter's pack with all the information that you need. You know what your starting time is, you you get your number, and so you get yourself ready at the start of the marathon. The marshals are all in place, the roads have been blocked and set up, the crowds are waiting, the feeding stations are ready for you, and all the crowds are waiting to see the runners go past them. But if you haven't yet started the Christian race, if you haven't been through that process and put in your application and and got your starting pack, then what I'm talking about today doesn't really apply to you. But it's okay, you can listen in, you can be like the crowd standing at the side and seeing what's involved in being a Christian. You can weigh up the cost. Do you want to take part in this race? So listen in as we look at what's involved in in being a Christian. Let's look at the passage. What encouragement and advice does Paul have for these new Christians setting out on the Christian life? I've split the passage into three sections. If you're taking notes, the first is called What Has Changed, which is verses 1 to 5. And then Paul looks ahead to the future in verse 6, which I've called... What does the future hold? And finally, some practical advice, which is verses 7 to 11, which I've called, How Do I Live? So now that I'm in Christ, what has changed? What does the future hold? And how do I live? First then, what has changed? Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I think these seven words highlight the big change that happens when you become a Christian. And there are two parts to it. Firstly, Jesus Christ is number one in your life, you serve him. In fact, a better translation of of this is Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul reminds them, first of all, that he's not free to do what he wants. He serves his master. Even the, what might have been thought of as the top Christian, the great apostle Paul, can't just do what he wants. He must serve his master as a slave. And the second part of this, Paul doesn't serve Jesus as a hermit sitting cross-legged in a cave humming religious mantras to himself. He does it in partnership with other Christians. Here with his faithful friend Timothy and later we'll see that he also does it in partnership with the Philippian church themselves. So the first point is Christians are slaves of Christ working together with other Christians. And verse 1 goes on. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Now the way that the Bible refers to People who follow Jesus is hardly ever as Christians, but most often as saints or those who are in Christ. And here they're referred to as saints in Christ Jesus. Well, the Greek word for saints is Hagios, which means to be consecrated or set apart for God." And it appears 67 times in the Bible. And it's always in the plural. It's the name for people who have been changed by Jesus Christ. It's the community of God's people on earth. And notice here that he says it includes the overseers and deacons. Yes, the church has leaders and administrators. And they're saints as well. All of us are slaves of Christ Jesus. So from the most gifted leader and teacher to the ordinary church member, it includes the stewards, the people serving coffee, even the PA team, all working together under Christ, our master. And Paul completes his formal greetings to the Philippian church here at the beginning. Paul reminds them how they became saints. Where did this faith come from? In verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost as if he says, I'm writing this letter because God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ gave you a gift, a free gift. That's what he means by grace. not something earned for good behavior, but a precious gift of being at peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. Let's look at verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I wonder how you would describe your prayers. What words spring to mind? when paul prays for the philippians it's always with joy he's always thankful for their partnership in the gospel right from day one when they first believed in jesus through all kinds of difficulties they have been partners with paul in the good news of jesus christ and i guess if he's excited about their partnership with him If it's filling his prayer time with thanks and joy, then perhaps they might be doing the same thing. When Christians are working together in close relationships in order to tell others the good news of Jesus, when they are gospel partners, they'll also be full of joy and thankfulness. I work with others here at St Mary's to run discussion groups and talks which explain the Christian faith, the good news, We use Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel and DVDs and and pamphlets and booklets. I can see why Paul is joyful about this kind of work. If you haven't yet been on the Identity course or Christianity Explored, then why not sign up for the next course? Bring a friend with you and experience for yourself the joy of working together or exploring with others the good news of Jesus Christ. It's great. The gospel is life-changing. The next course starts in September. Whether you're already one of the saints or whether you just haven't taken that step yet, then why not come along? Bring a friend. It's a joyful thing. And gospel work is for all of us. Paul says the Philippians were involved from day one. Once you've found the good news, of course you want your friends to know that Jesus can rescue them too. So my first point, what has changed when you became one of the saints? You became a slave of Jesus Christ. And you now work together with other saints in telling others the amazing way that Jesus has rescued you. I wonder if that's how you would have referred to a Christian is that how you think of being a Christian did you realize that's what it means to be a Christian to be a slave of Jesus Christ working with others to tell other people the amazing way that Jesus has rescued you well my second point what does the future hold In verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, I mentioned a marathon race at the beginning, but it's longer than that, isn't it? Let's think about where the race starts and where it ends. The race begins when we've explored the gospel of Jesus Christ and we found that everything he said and did was true. And we've turned to him in repentance and faith. We've apologized for ignoring him most of our lives and agreed to follow him wherever he tells us to go. We've been baptized, which shows that we've died with Christ and we're starting a new, a brand new life with him in charge. And where does the race end? Well, it ends on the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul says that we can be confident that we will complete the race successfully. I wonder if every marathon runner can say that. We will meet Jesus when he winds up this present age. And we'll go with him into the age to come and enjoy eternity with him and all the saints in glory. That's where we're headed. Paul says it's good work and it's God's work. He started it, and we'll be confident, we can be confident that he will finish it. He mentions here the day of Christ Jesus. And I haven't time to say very much about that now, but when Christ will return to this earth, he will take the saints with him into heaven. So, where we're heading is described in three ways in Revelation it's described as a new heaven and a new earth, meaning a physical earth, a renewed world with no death, no decay, no sadness, no sin. It's also described as a city, meaning that all God's people will live closely with each other in perfect harmony. If you're thinking of uh, it being a desert island or a mountaintop experience, that's not what the Bible says about heaven. Heaven is somewhere where we're going to be closely living with others, but without any conflict, in perfect harmony. And finally, it's described as a new temple, meaning that we'll be living in harmony with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we can't really get our minds around those three pictures together, but clearly it's going to be a wonderful place. And there's a saying which will lead me on nicely to my final point. To live above with the saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, now that's quite a different story. So my third point, how do I live this Christian life in verses 7 to 11? We started this race and it ends at the day of Christ. But how do we run this race? How do we live now that we're saints living in partnership with others, telling others the good news of Jesus Christ? Let me read 7 to 11 again. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. To the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul has so much to say about the Christian life. There is the whole of this book of Philippians to study, as well as all his other books. But for now, let me just cover the things that he writes about in these five verses. I see three main themes. Firstly, Paul has the Philippians in his heart. Secondly, he is in chains for the gospel. And thirdly, he prays that their love will grow in a particular way. So let me go through those just one by one. Firstly, he has them in his heart. I hope you don't believe that being a Christian is all about following a set of rules. I think coming to St Mary's, you'll know that that's not true. It's not about do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, good and bad ways to live. When each of my children were born, I didn't greet them with a workshop manual of how to live. Of course, there would be rules. To make the home run smoothly so that they can be safe, So that we can live in harmony with each other rather than conflict. But what came first was relationship. When they cried for help, I'd listen to them and help them, whether it was feeding them or changing their nappy or picking them up and tending their grazes when they fell off their bike. And Paul says, He had the Philippians in mind like this. He was their spiritual father. He brought them to new birth in the gospel. And the first thing he wanted them to know was that he loved them. As a father loves his children, he loved them. But maybe it's better to think of him as an elder brother because we only have one heavenly father. And he only has children. He has no grandchildren. Paul says that he loved the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's the model that we should have for our relationships with other Christians. The affection that Christ Jesus had. The affection of our older brother, Jesus. Now, without getting into relationship theory, let me simply say that any relationship has conditions. A marriage is a covenant relationship. You're stuck with each other until death do you part. Mark. But if you want to maintain affection within your marriage, you quickly learn that some things please your spouse and other things annoy them. Here is the big secret to relationships. You ready for this? Just because something is important to you, it doesn't mean it's equally valued by your loved one. And the opposite is true. Just because something doesn't matter to you, it doesn't mean that that isn't something that your loved one cares about very dearly. Well, without giving away any secrets, I'm sure you've found out some of those things for yourselves. And you know, it's the same with parents and teenagers. Wise teenagers, whether their parents are quite reasonable or totally impossible to live with will cotton on to this before too long before World War III breaks out in their homes you learn what pleases and what annoys your loved ones and you modify your behaviour accordingly what does Paul want the Philippians to understand about love? He doesn't write here about unconditional covenant love he says he loves the Philippians with the affection of Jesus Christ there are things that will draw you closer to Jesus and there are things that will break that close affectionate relationship that you have with him if you delve into watching the wrong things films or games or pornography that depict good, God-given gifts in abusive or wrong relationships, then your prayer life will suffer. You'll be doing the things that displease the Lord. And the same thing applies to anything which takes first place in your life at the expense of your relationship with Jesus. Boyfriends, girlfriends... The clothes that you, you long to have, your appearance, the f- food that you long for, having money, career. All these things can cause you to lose your first love, an affectionate, close relationship with Jesus, your rescuer and your master. But as we stay close to our Lord, we can lovingly help our Christian brothers and sisters do the same. We can give them some tips on how to overcome temptation. We can pray with each other so that we don't fall into sin. We can learn good habits of prayer and Bible study and Christian service from each other. Because we need to find people we can be honest with if we're truly to grow in our faith. But do you notice how sensitive Paul is in his writing, how loving he is, it pours out from the way he writes things. He doesn't upset the Philippians. He doesn't write things that annoy them. He maintains a close affectionate love for them all. And yet he's miles away, cut off from them in prison. So, secondly, Paul is in chains for the gospel. Why was he in prison? Because he'd been telling people the good news of Jesus. Anyone who tells people the good news of a rescue from their sin will find that some people don't like to hear it. It's not nice to tell someone that they need to change. That God cannot be close to you while you continue to do the things that hurt him. It's not exactly PC, is it? You might be unpopular. You might get in trouble at work. You might even be taken to court. In many countries, you'll be arrested, falsely accused of breaking some dubious law and face unjust, long prison terms. And for some, death. Christians are suffering these sort of things now. They need the love and support of their brothers and sisters in Christ to go through them. You know, sitting in prison gives you time to think. Paul longs for those that he loves that they'll do the right thing. Not waste their lives with wrong passions or wasteful and destructive living. So Paul prays for the Philippians to live well. He writes them a long letter to tell them how they should do it, to encourage them to grow in their faith and to go on telling others about the rescue plan of Jesus, the good news of forgiveness of sins. So thirdly and lastly, He prays that their love will grow in a particular way. Let me read it again from verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What does he pray for, sitting in his prison, chained up and uncomfortable? He prays that their love will abound, flourish, multiply more and more. But not wishy-washy, anything-goes, love. This is love that always does the right thing. This is knowledgeable love with deep insight that can tell the difference between merely living good lives and choosing what's the very best. Between enjoying fun times and being completely pure in your thoughts and deeds. And between conduct that most people would find acceptable and being blameless. Paul's writing to the saints here. People whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. They no longer live for the passions that ruled them before they were rescued. They live in Christ. And the passions that they now have come from him it's his likeness that people notice in them their lives are so good you might think that they're faultless and people notice they know these people are Christians and it proves to them that God is real they realize how God is good they see it in their lives They see how well these Christians cope with the everyday struggles of life. It can't be possible for people to live that well on their own efforts, can it? These Christians are in partnership with their brothers and sisters to show people what a great life it is. You've been rescued from an empty way of life, from the way that you used to live. of course this is only a summary of what Paul says there's the rest of the Philippians another three and a half chapters that explains how this all works but let me close with a few practical things we've seen that Paul lives for the good news of Jesus Christ he wants his converts to have the same passion that he has he prays that they will live excellent lives that give glory to God How can we do that? I have just three ideas for us to think about. Firstly, do you read the Bible every morning and pray every morning as you start the day? Do you let the word of God challenge you and encourage you? Have you read it through from Genesis to Revelation? Well, if you don't know where to start, get a good study Bible or a study guide or a Bible app or a Bible overview with helpful notes. Secondly, be part of a group of saints who work together for the gospel. To pray with other Christians and to explain God's rescue plan to others is what we're supposed to be doing. You know, it helps you get things clear in your own mind. Why not join a summer camp some of you have just been to m training camp. What a great way to be clear of the gospel in your own mind. Or a holiday club. Or the Christian Union at a university or, or college. Go somewhere where the gospel is central and work with other Christians to explain it to others. Sign up for the next Christianity Explored course as a helper. Bring someone along. Find some way to share the gospel, working closely with other Christians. And thirdly, make some Christian friends who you can be honest with, who will pray with you and encourage you, challenge you. This might be a Bible study group, a church home group, a prayer triplet, Find someone that you can share what you struggle with in your life. Or your brothers and sisters can pray for you. You will need to change. All of us need to change. And some things need a lot more help and encouragement than others. If your habits before you became a Christian were to spend all your spare cash on lottery tickets because you longed to be a millionaire. Or maybe it was to spend all your spare money on expensive insurance policies because you wanted to protect your affluent lifestyle. Then with the right help and encouragement, you can change those habits. If you've had several sexual partners with whom you've had children before you become a Christian, it's not always easy to repair and restore broken or fractured family ties. You know, the model of family security that God gave us of one man and one woman bound to each other in marriage until one of them dies has been progressively ignored and none of the alternatives really works. When I was in Ethiopia, I asked a simple question to one of the university students. Do you have many brothers and sisters? Thinking that he'd say yes, because uh, African people often have large families he said yes so I asked him how many he said that was difficult to say he didn't really know his mother had five children and he was the oldest three boys and two girls but his father had six wives and he wasn't sure how many children they had in total. He'd been away at university for nearly a year, and he didn't ca- keep up with what was happening in his family. Now, if his father became a Christian, he would join the church and bring along his six wives and countless children. Doesn't life get complicated when we invent new rules for marriage? We come to Christ with baggage from the life that we've led. And we need our brothers and sisters to patiently and lovingly help us grow in godliness until we are seen to be faultless by those who see that our faith is real because Jesus lives in us and changes us. So, three practical things that will help you to live this Christian life that you've started one, read the Bible every morning and pray. Two, be part of a group of saints who work closely together, sharing the gospel. And three, find some Christian friends that you can be honest with and pray with and who will challenge you and encourage you. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for Paul's letter to the Philippians. Some of us have known you for many years, others are just starting out on the Christian marathon run, and some are just looking at things before they decide if they want to follow Jesus. But we ask, Lord, that all of us will learn to love the gospel, your rescue plan for mankind, and will want to see others rescued as well. We do want to know you better, Lord. We, we want to live good lives, so we, we ask you, please, for your help. Whatever you want us to do next in our lives, please make clear to us. Please guide us so that we don't keep doing the wrong things. Please help us to find brothers and sisters who can support us and encourage us to grow up in our faith. Thank you so much for loving us, Lord. We can't really take it in that you wanted us to be with you for all all eternity and so made it possible for us to join you in heaven. Lord Jesus, we're amazed and so thankful for all that you've done for us. Please help us to live as saints who work together in partnership to tell other people the good news of the Lord Jesus. Amen.